0: Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of The Gradient Podcast. We interview various people who research, build, or use AI, including academics, engineers, artists, entrepreneurs, and more. I'm your host, Andre Krenkov. In this episode, I'm excited to be interviewing Chip Huyen. Chip Huyen is a co-founder of ClayPot AI, a platform for real-time machine learning. Previously, she was with Snorkel, AI, and NVIDIA. She teaches CS329S machine learning system design at Stanford. She has also written four best-selling Vietnamese books and more recently her new book, which is O'Reilly's Designing Machine Learning Systems has just come out. She also has a Discord server related to this stuff. So we'll link to that below. But with all that being said, thanks Chip for joining us for this interview.
1: Uh, I guess uh, I'm very excited to be here and I think it's a good excuse for me to catch up with Andre. As long overdue.
0: Indeed. Indeed. We met uh, at Stanford where I also am a grad student uh, or still am with Chip having long since left. But back <laughs> in the day, we did uh, meet each other in an in AI-themed CS class. So uh, knowing Chip, I know this will be a really fun interview. So let's get into it. Uh, Usually we start by asking uh, people how they got into AI, how they started doing research, but I think before that, in this case, I'll ask uh, about when you were in high school, you went to Brunei for a three-day vacation, which turned into a three-year trip for Asia, Africa, and South America, which is listed in your personal website.
1: I used to be cool. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I know. <laughs> what happened?
1: <laughs> um, I know. I was so actually I met a friend back then, so we I met him while I was traveling and he came to visit me in the US and he was like, chip, it was way cooler when it was twenty. And was like, okay, that's sad, but okay.
0: Yeah. Well, so how did that happen? How did the three day vacation turn into three year journey across the world?
1: You know, Young, you just have the desire to like want to see the wall. So I think I I already had that feeling. Uh, I I guess I came from a I grew up in a very small village, so nobody in my family has ever traveled outside the country. So I was like, okay, what is out there? So so I went to Brunei and I met a um a lady at a at a festival and she was like, I'm driving to Malaysia tomorrow. Wanna hitch a ride? And i was like, yeah, sure. So that's what I did Um, and I thought it was always really easy to like just hop from one country to the next. So let's just go to see how far I could go. So that's what I did and I started writing uh, and picking up odd jobs on the road.
0: Yeah. Wow. And uh, yeah, you managed to make it for three years. So what convinced (laughs) you to uh, go back and live a, you know, normal-ish life? after all the bad travel
1: so it sounds like very exciting looking at i'm not sure it sounds exciting to other people i used to think of like traveling the is very exciting but then things get old so you you meet a lot of people but you never really develop deep connections because you're always on the move so it mm-hmm. did get old and i wanted something more so i real also in a lot of conversations i started realizing a lot of gaps in my knowledge because i just finished high school so, so I wanted to learn. That's why I went back to school.
0: I see. And I suppose that's when you started getting into AI is, uh, I would assume at Stanford.
1: Yeah. So I didn't, I didn't think I would study AI. I didn't know what AI was. Um, but so I went to school college thinking I would do creative writing. Mm-hmm. So my friend actually told me, he's like, you want to be so poor. I was like, I love writing. <laughs> so, so, so I went to Stanford, and it was as you near know, Stanford. Like you had to take some fundamental, uh, mm-hmm. engineering fundamental. Uh, so I took a CS course, and everyone told me that you should take it as early as possible when all your friends are still doing it, or it be very painful. So I did. Uh, I took an intro to CS first quarter, and I really like it. Uh, I think I was very lucky to take a course with Mehran. Uh, Sammy, and he's an amazing professor, he makes a course, the course so engaging, mm-hmm. so fun. And I just realized the importance of having a good teacher, because he totally told me from someone who has zero interest in engineering, become like a CS major.
0: Mm-hmm. And then it all just sort of followed from there. And actually, yeah. I'm curious... When you were an undergrad, so you you started, I think, what, 2015,
1: 2016-ish? Oh, 14, yeah.
0: 14, okay, yeah. So you started kind of as the deep learning hype wave was just like accelerating <laughs> and still so not at the speed.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. Uh, so at what point did you get the idea to create your own course which is uh, TensorFlow for Deep Learning Research, which you actually developed and taught in undergrad.
1: <laughs> so it was never really an idea. So I so in in a, in my sophomore uh, summer I did an internship with a startup. It's like Grammar, and um. I learned TensorFlow there. I thought it was really cool because I was able to just like build a model like very easily. And I wanted to do more. So I was looking up tutorials on TensorFlow and there was not a lot. Or like there were some that's like very hard. I was very lucky. I had a very good mentor from her and he walked me through the stuff. It was like, what is it going to be like without him? Now I want to go back to campus and I want to have a group. I want to have a mentor. So I went to some of my professors like, hey, can you like teach a course of TensorFlow? And they were like, I don't have time for it.
0: So nobody wanted to create a course.
1: And and then was and someone's like, why don't you just do it? Because there's a thing called student initiated course. And I was like, Okay, this sounds reasonable. So so that's how I started and I I emailed a bunch of people um who whose tutorial I found uh to be uh really good, that I that I like and I got a lot of help from them.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, and then the course was apparently, you know, a success because uh, it happened twice. So it didn't. Uh, yeah, a lot of people signed up, right?
1: Uh, a lot of people signed TensorFlow was such a hot keyword back in twenty sixteen. So I think I think the course was at the right time because it was. Um, I think TensorFlow was out in my like, late twenty fifteen, and mm-hmm. my course was offered like at the end of my twenty sixteen. So it was pretty fast for a new. Public tool, um, so I think it was just at the right time and I got a lot of help from people yeah but, but I did learn a painful lesson so I, I think I created a course on TensorFlow and then TensorFlow decided to upgrade to 2.0 and all the tutorials I created was just like outdated <laughs> and then people asking me hey do you want to take your course again I was looking at it like no I had to like recreate like 80% of it so that's funny to realize how ephemeral tools are like anything that I like, if, if you create anything just like tablet is going to go out of like fashion very fast and mm-hmm. we don't want to like over index on any particular tools because tools come in and outside so i think that's a lesson that i learned for for my next course uh so we want to focus on something more fundamental and also the same for my book
0: exactly yeah and, and we'll get to that in due time your course and book both about machine learning systems so But yeah, jumping back a bit, I guess, obviously you took some classes at Stanford about AI, which are at this point were you know really cool classes. But yeah, looking back, would you say you were immediately enamored by AI, or is it just like a thing that built as an interest over time?
1: I thought AI was really cool. So I think it really comes down to having the right teacher because the next course I took was CS two twenty one and at the time, uh, we were learning some algorithms to like play Pac Man. So they just like having some AI to this is <laughs> intro yeah 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 and I thought it was like super fun, and I found myself really enjoying it. And I, I think I say it applies the same algorithm to like other games, uh, like Ghost. Um, then and then what really really convinced me was when I saw the news on Google Translate. So like around 2016, Google translate, um, but now as they apply, um, their big language, uh, I think they didn't call it didn't go to language model back then. Seek um, to seek. Yeah. 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 So, the day, yeah. The query of translations and I'm from Vietnam and so my family doesn't speak English. Like my, my brother doesn't speak English. So, and I just realized it's like, Oh, like my parents, didn't want to visit me in the US because they just was afraid of like traveling because they didn't know like how to communicate with other people, different languages. And my brother like can't really read things I write in English. And I just realized it's like having a good translation systems can really eliminate a lot of the language barrier. And I think it would be really, really powerful. So that's what um, convinced me about the power of the potential of AI, I don't want to say the power of AI, but the potential of AI. So I got into when I first got into AI, I actually focused on machine translation.
0: Oh, wow, that's that's a cool story. I remember yeah, intro to AI when I took it at Georgia Tech as an undergrad. Yeah, I thought it was all really, really cool. And actually at the end of the course we had one class that was just the teacher, the professor. Um, kind of going through her own research. And I thought it was really cool. Yeah. And then I, based on that, essentially wound up applying to do a summer research internship and then to do yeah. research with her. So uh, yeah. yeah, it's interesting how one class can do that.
1: I know. Um, I guess, be, yeah, I think I think a lot of professors I has the fortune to study with really inspire me to want to teach more.
0: And now you get to inspire people as a teacher as well, so that's pretty Ooh. cool. Wow,
1: well, <laughs> I'm not sure that's that's a that's a that's a plan, right? But whether it actually actually got to inspire anyone is up to up to people to decide.
0: Yeah, exactly. You can't uh, you can't plan for that. It just has mm-hmm. to happen. <laughs> And um, you know, I, I obviously dug through your whole website and preparation of materials oh, uh, no. for this, even though I know you well. You know, I gotta dig up something from your past. Uh, so I found it interesting to come across this blog post confession of a so-called AI expert, <laughs> which I never <laughs> seeing blog
1: post,
0: yeah, back in the day, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I went all the way back. And uh, yeah, it's all about how, you know, following having this uh, course um, and some Stanford classes and whatever, now you were seen by many people as being a so-called AI expert. Um, But at the same time, you felt this was kind of overblown and that you're basically a beneficiary of this AI hype craze. Um, So looking back, I guess, can you recall your thinking at the time when you decided to write this blog post and how that has evolved since?
1: Wow. It it was an old blog post. Um, Yeah.
0: Five, six years.
1: (laughs) You have to remember
0: what it was to be a younger version of yourself. Yeah,
1: naive. Um, So all the time I think... um, I was a little bit insecure. I think I was a junior in college and I did see something was really strange. So I come from a writing background and in my first year looking for internship, everyone, like a lot of recruiters, just look at me like I'm crazy. They were like, we can't take you seriously as a engineer. If an engineer, if all have done is writing. So it's actually made me very scared. So actually I actually didn't mm. tell people about my writing. I just only like started to talk. Oh yes, I did write books before. Like very recently I had a roommate who lived with me for three years in college and she didn't know that I wrote book before until oh, I wow. graduated. So that really like made me scared. Because people really told me that. So, and then I just saw that I got rejected for like every internship I applied in my first year. Mm-hmm. And then I taught the course and then like a lot, several companies rejected me previously reached out to me and say, hey, how, how are you? Like, are you interested this year? So it's just, it's just like a bit crazy to me. It's like, I didn't change that much. Like, of course, I learned a lot of new things, but like my knowledge, like doesn't really, didn't really have the depth of it yet. So so there was something like off here. And I, I, did, I did really believe in the potential of AI. I just thought that just because of the hype, people didn't really have time to think about like, who like what is really important to know and just realize on very weak signals. Like mm-hmm. having a course. Even though a like, TensorFlow tutorial is not the same as having a course on the I don't know, like theory AI or something. But it was still like conflated those so yeah.
0: signals. Yeah, that makes sense. Um back then it was things were just happening so fast and growing so fast, I guess people just any somewhat promising signal was good enough. Uh,
1: but the golden days are over.
0: Yeah, the not anymore. job market
1: is so much more competitive now.
0: Yeah, everyone got into AI. All the undergrads graduated, like you and uh, yeah.
1: Did you interview Shreya on the podcast yet?
0: I not yet.
1: Oh, she was saying just like, oh my god, like if she was doing her undergrad again today, she would get into web three because like AI is too much. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, I don't know if I would still do AI personally but uh, you know at least we're not going to get another AI winter based on the seemingly AI actually being helpful uh, so that's good. Things
1: are changing though because I think when I got into AI people were very excited about chatbots and mm. at that time I wouldn't really have the models, a good model for chatbot yet but it seems like we are getting there somehow. This just took a while.
0: Yeah, I think um, it's an interesting time where, you know, a decade ago there was a lot of excitement and now there is some applications where, you know, AI and deep learning are generating billions of dollars like Google Translation, but there are still a lot of emerging things that are uh, in early stages but seem very promising. So, it's kind of a a mix of a lot of things are in early stages and a lot of people are still exploring them. And uh, yeah, that makes me ask, so you did some undergrad uh, research as well. So did you initially think to focus on, you said machine translation and uh, yeah, did you kind of consider sticking with research uh, before eventually weighing up in industry?
1: Um, I did. I, I did think about PhD and that was something that I was a little bit sad uh, at the end of uh, in my senior year because um, nobody in my family went to college. I didn't know what a PhD it was. So I never thought about it. But only until my senior year that I, that I got to know friends like you who was doing PhD and I'm like, wow, PhD students are really cool. I wanted to do PhD, but by then it was too late to mm. really prepare. For a PhD applications. So I was thinking, oh, let's work for a year. So I did talk to some of my uh, advisors and they did tell me just the same. Mm. Um, so so I joined NVIDIA. But then that's when I was realized that there were also a lot of interesting problems in the industry. So I never mm. came back to
0: PhD. Yeah, well, maybe one day you will. You know, you never know. <laughs>
1: you never know. That's what I want to do. Like one day to get really rich and just like pursue various PhD in my free time.
0: Yeah, just start your own lab. You don't need a PhD at that point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So speaking of that, you went to Nvidia, and I would assume that's kind of around when you started to hone in on this focus and specialization on machine learning systems, which is now kind of what you are you know, teaching. And then I wrote a book about, so that's kind of your main focus, right?
1: Yeah. So that was, I realized how small the the model part was, is part of the whole system because it was so much more work surrounding the modeling. And I felt like at that time, there was a lot of focus on the modeling part, which is also like very important, but it's just not the only things that, we, yeah, we can't just like only look at the modeling part.
0: Exactly. And and just to expand on that a bit, I guess, uh, for anyone listening who hasn't uh, taken classes or, you know, gone too much into AI, modeling is like, you know, you make the AI that translates uh, A to C, just a bit of code that does this one thing. And so, you know, you can do that. You can do a machine learning model, train it with data, blah blah blah. But what you write about and teach is that okay, you have this piece that you train to do something, but maybe counterintuitively, that's there's a lot more work besides doing that when you want to yeah. actually deploy it in industry.
1: Yeah, like data engineering, uh, deployment, post deployment monitoring, and continual learning. Yeah, like a lot of like, we also had for different stakeholders, product people, um, ops engineers. A lot of them don't speak necessarily speak the same language as the machine learning engineers or data scientists. Also like subject matter experts as well, like for labeling or even like curating the predictions, like post processing of predictions. For example, like if you work on stitch fix, you might make a lot of recommendations for items because you might want to involve some stylists to like look over them and like write them again. Um, so so you need to have like an interface for non engineers or non data scientists to get involved into the systems and make changes as needed.
0: Mm-hmm. Exactly, which is not consideration at all in research. Yeah, but this reminds me, in in your book, which we'll we'll talk about in more detail soon, you do early on have a bit on uh, industry versus research when it comes to machine learning and really contrasting a lot of how these two compare and how they're actually very different in a lot of ways. So uh, for any listeners who might be, on the industry side or on the research side, maybe could you just walk through uh, what your comparison was uh, for that?
1: So, um, so, so, one thing is like, uh, in, re- in research, right, we focus a lot on training because you need to train models multiple times and you probably do inference like once, like for test, like eval- validations of testing. So, so people we like a lot of time like, optimize for like fast, like high throughput, of like training data. But in, in productions, um, we want to optimize for inference, especially if you do online predictions. So you have to care about like, latency, uh, which a concept a lot of researchers don't really care about. Um, another is very important is uh, the metrics. So I think in, in research, uh, we um, a lot of time we focus on one specific metrics, for example, like if translations and something like blue score, um, something, uh, or if other tasks that maybe like uh, I don't know, F1s or accuracy. So so, so performance metrics is not everything. Like in productions, you care about other things as well. And is just one thing. For instance, like interpretability, like fairness. So one thing I like to ask my students is that you give them like different models. But like one model has very good, like high overall performance. And the other model may like not so well. But then like, have first of all, I like have model A with um 98% overall accuracy. But then they make that, like is um for the majority uh users. They have the 99% accuracy, but for minority it's only 80%. And then yeah. another models uh, that's like maybe 95% accuracy, but they perform equally well for both majority and minority. And which model would you uh, select? So there are a lot more considerations into in deploying a model that um a lot of research bench benchmarks don't necessarily capture But I also, I also know that it's changing. Uh, I think there have been more and more research papers talking about maybe more dynamic little board to have more um, metrics that we care about and not just like pure models accuracy metrics.
0: Yeah, not a single number that you can increase to get state-of-the-art and say we achieve SOTA on this yeah. this benchmark. Yeah. Okay. Well. Yeah, apparently um, research is different from industry in that you actually need to build something. And it, it
1: should be right. Like, um, you, if I, I think like research have different goals and I like, guess industry have different goals. So I think it's normal to have different um, things. So, so what, another example was that I just like forgot it's very big biggest data. So I think uh, that's something that I feel like one of the biggest problems um, is in research. We work a lot with static data. And it should be because, like, it wants, like, if you develop a model and I develop another model, we want to be able to benchmark against the same data set to say, like, which one actually make an improvement. Um, so, so, data sets in research are like, usually very well studied. Uh, people know all the quirks, like, okay, if you have this data set, you need to, like, remove this kind of with character or something. The will know understand data set. But in production, data is, like, ever changing. Um mm-hmm. so so it develops a model, um data distribution shift is something I think that happened a lot in productions. And I think so research and you know, so I study a lot. But some uh so so when I was writing my book, I did look into like data distribution shift and I realized that research and industry have actually quite different vocabulary. Mm-hmm. Um so so people like have multiple different terms for the same thing, like concept drift. Um label shift, covariance shift, um they're there a lot, I actually don't remember everything off the top of my head. Um so in a lot of time in research um we we saw the paper but they make a lot of like unrealistic expectations, assumptions. For example, like to address distribution shift. So like when you uh the, the data today differs from the data yesterday and you so like if you change the model on data from yesterday so it won't perform very well on data from today. So you want to adapt the model to data from today, right? So mm-hmm. so the model, so like a lot of research assumes that we know it in advance so what the future distributions might be like. So you can adapt the model to that. But a lot of time we, don't, we want to adapt the model before we know the shift. Does it make sense? So, so so we want to build the model robust enough because like when the shift happened and we haven't, so we, we don't know the shit before
0: the shit right. happens. Of course. Yeah. 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 So it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. And it's interesting that that's the case that there's this disconnect given that these days, a lot of industry is just former researchers. A lot of industry engineers seem to be you know former, former grad students in AI. And some companies like Google, like just have a ton of engineers and a ton of researchers, uh, it's in some cases hard to compete with them. Yeah. I see a
1: lot of like AI researchers affiliated, uh, with companies, I guess, uh, for, for a good reason. Oh, mm. uh, was another is that, um, it can be like pretty hard for researchers to make, to do certain kind of research, for example, for recommended systems, right? Uh, like if the model makes the recommendations, you, you want to evaluate its performance by seeing like whether a recommendation is clicked on or is selected by a user. So it requires certain inter- interactivity that you don't really have, you can't have with a static data set. So mm. we, we have a lot of like researchers come to us it's like yes, we want to study that uh, first in the context of like conditional bandits. but then they just don't have interactive data or yeah. like an environment of simulations to actually study the algorithms.
0: Hmm. I see. I see. Cool. And also I, I hear this uh, all of the time. And so I wonder if you would agree, the common wisdom is that in research, you care about having like the latest and greatest, you know, sexy model that does all the cool stuff. And then in industry. You just want like a simple model that you can throw all your data at. And the best thing is not to improve your model, but just to get more data, right?
1: I think the industry wants sexy models as well. It's just like sometimes sexy models are just not feasible. Because it might they might cost way too much money. So so a lot of times, So so I think like, for example, like I was talking to some infrastructure engineers, right? And they tell us like when you evaluate tools. So choose a tool that's like well understood, have a lot of community, so that like if something breaks, you know how to fix it. And a lot of time it's very similar in for machine learning models. In the industry, you might want to choose a model that's like well-known, well understood, and mean highly optimized to run on different like hardware that you want to run the models on. So if you if you choose like sexy new models, then it hasn't been tested. No one yeah. has optimized it. NVIDIA hasn't thrown 10 engineers at it to make it like super fast on GPU. So you probably yeah. don't want to use it. Um, yes, but companies do. Like a lot of companies phones for the soda trap and comes like, hey, uh, hey, we want to use this like super cool model. Do we want to, how do we do it? And we're just like, okay, if I don't need, you probably need a logistic regression. Um, <laughs> it, it happens. Um, but companies do, uh, do want that.
0: Yeah. That makes sense. Okay. And now I guess you've been in industry for like four or five years. So yeah, you
1: don't tell people that
0: (laughs) you've been out in the real world for For a
1: long time, for a long time. Yes. For a long time.
0: Um, And yeah, it's interesting that, you know, you got into it around 2014 at the top, top of the hype cycle. And you went went into the industry in twenty, you know, a few years ago. So how do you think the perception of AI is in industry now? Like, have people calmed down and have a more grounded understanding of it as far as what they're pursuing, or are we still not at kind of the bottom of a hype wave?
1: I think we are in the maturing stage. Um, So I think we with a lot of like any new new things, there are like certain consolidations and where we see the consolidations could happens with research. Like mm-hmm. research has become pretty expensive nowadays. It's like where we see some several major labs pushing out uh, large models. So there's a lot of consolidations and I could see the same things happening in industry. It's just like a little bit behind. Um, so, so so, one thing is that like, I, I think we, we are in the maturing stage for ML Ops or ML productions. So, what that means is that now, um, before, we didn't know the challenges. So, so I think that like we, uh, I be before, um, so like a lot of companies started adopting machine learning uh, maybe like four or five years ago. And at that time, they built their machine learning platforms for the needs they taught back then without a lot of understanding of like the challenges. So, we've seen a lot of companies coming to us and saying, like, hey, we realize that now we can't address the complexity of today workflow. So we are in the process of re-architecturing our platform. So so we now we understand a lot more about the challenges. So we know that like, okay, data should shift. Like monitoring is super hard. Continuous learning is in uh, like inevitable. So uh, like online predictions is very important. We can't just like do batch predictions anymore. Of course we can see do that for a lot of tasks, but for, for many, many tasks like recommended systems, for predictions, customer support. Uh, you, you're like uh, you can't just do batch bration anymore. So online production is very high on the list. So 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 we need to like build out our infrastructure to to solve these challenges. And we also know that data scientists can't be expected to solve these problems because data scientists are good at a lot of things, but we can't reasonably expect data scientists to be good to be good at both data science and infrastructure. So so we need to invest more infrastructure. So the company knows that. The unknown, though, is still like, what is the right architecture? Mm -hmm. So I think the community is still in debate over that.
0: Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, and uh, I guess that really brings, uh, kind of makes clear that another interesting aspect is this whole notion of machine learning infrastructure, AI infrastructure, where, again, things move so quick that when you were in undergrad, when I was in my master's, I don't know, even I guess some big companies had infrastructure, but uh, it was very, very young, right? Uh, so, yeah. as you said, it probably matured. And in fact, uh, this reminded me in, in um, 2020, you wrote a blog post called What I Learned from Looking at 200 Machine Learning Tools.
1: Yeah, we're faithful.
0: Yes. So, <laughs> and you looked at a bit of a history of how it was uh, kind of a landscape what's happening and problems facing MLOps and some stuff. So what were your impressions from writing a blog post back then? And do you think things have changed in the two years since you wrote that?
1: Yeah. One thing is, it's like a lot more companies have emerged a lot. So I think like, when I first wrote the, the post, I was trying very hard to categorize the tool. I think I think it could be one of the reasons why people like the post was that I think it was the first. I feel like maybe I'm not sure if it was actually the first, but it could be just for a lot of people or for me, at least. It was like, it was a very first attempt to like, okay, I, I didn't want to say very first because no one can be the first at anything. But uh, yes, so, but I think I did try to categorize the uh, tools different categories. Uh, and I think that over the last two years, some of the categories have matured a lot. So categories like experiment tracking. As I have certainly mature, so there's a category of like deployment tools that has like mature a lot. Uh, but it's not entirely mature because a lot of deployment tools focus on batch deployments and not really highly optimized for um for um for latency online predictions and also like there's a new certain new categories like feature store it's pretty new since the last uh, three years or uh, two years i think like two years ago it was like not very well understood um, but now a lot of companies looking into them so uh, so so yeah so a lot more have emerged so i think we have better understanding of like what kind of tools there are what steps, what stages of the product uh, production cycle looks like. Oh, is there's a whole new category of tools that I thought was really funny. So because the, the landscape nowadays, it exists so many different categories and it's so fragmented. There's a new category of tools that emerge, just to glue different tools together. So oh. they call it like interoperability, inter, up, something yes. like that. Yes,
0: interoperability. That's a hard one to say. Interoperability, yes. Uh, yes, yes, that's interesting. I wouldn't have thought that. And again, for this stuff that we we're discussing, for blog posts uh, as usual, we'll include links uh, uh, in the description, or you can just look up ships website.
1: So I think that one thing that I was I learned from that was that it's very confusing. Customers, mm-hmm. because I was looking into it, and I felt like I have some understanding of like the landscape, like what it does, and I still had a hard time understand a lot of buzzes tools do I think like one reason, i one is that like people use very generic term. and was like, oh yeah, we are like a platform. We do this amazing. We reduce speed by like from days to minutes. Like it doesn't really mean anything, or or like a lot of time people like invent the new phrase to describe them, to try to make themselves stand out from other tools. Mm -hmm. And then we have a lot of like, it's like, it's just impossible to understand. So, so it's just like, recently we have a, a a, uh, an event on our discord and you know for for event for our event the fun the best part actually is after party so so when it's not recorded and people start talking like the honest opinion Um, yeah Yeah. no don't
0: record (laughs) your fun (laughs) discord
1: (laughs) chat so so i think i have this theory that that like purchase like um adoptions like companies business leaders make decisions not based on merit, but based on hype. So like a lot of time, like people was like here because a company got some, a lot of VC money and they just like blast all over the place. Like people said, like when some my friends, when they got Instagram, they get like advertisements for, uh, I don't know, for like jewelry or for dresses or like, I don't know, for, I don't know, whatever, for food. I just get a lot of advertisements on like the new MLR tool. school. Because that's my Instagram. You um, so,
0: ads yeah. for the new AI oh my infrastructure God. tools.
1: Yeah, yeah. of oh, the new AI conferences. like, there's so many of them. Oh, conferences. Uh, yeah, okay, okay. Fair yeah. enough. So, Fair. so, 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 so like, so a lot of companies, they have a lot of like VC money and they start like paying a lot of money for marketing. And then like a company says like a business leader say, okay, a lot of people are talking about this. Do we need to jump on this trend, or are we missing out? So it just seemed to me like uh, it's very hype based, mm-hmm. but the same. I think I think this might change. I think slowly. I think we we see that more uh, over time. We have more winners emerge, and the purchase decisions are less hype based and more fact based. Mm-hmm. Okay, scary. but please, if any business leader is listening to this, I'm not charge talking anyone. It's just. Broad, broad terms, you
0: know, I mean, I think it's it's fair to be a bit cynical uh, as an adult. Uh, a lot of people make a lot of decisions without being uh, entirely informed. And uh, so after working uh, at a few companies, uh, NVIDIA, Snorkel, AI, Netflix, I... Um, and learning about this uh, ecosystem and all the tools and so on, you are now, you have co-founded Claypot AI, your own company, creating a new tool of some sort, as I understand it. So, yeah, how did that come about? Did you just sort of realize that there's a thing that people, that doesn't exist and needs to exist? And then, like, I want to, I'll do that.
1: Yeah, I hope so. Uh, I think the idea was like stuck with me for a while. Um, I did see, so so the original idea was that I saw something like mesmerizing about TikTok. It was just like, how are they able to like adapt the preference so fast? <laughs> so I was talking and it was at the same time because I was working with NVIDIA before. So we did have some customers, Marco as well. And we just really I think it's like pretty, okay, no offense to anyone. I think it's a general observation. It's like deployment was still very hard. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, for certain companies, it takes them like months to update a model. How oh, wow. can TikTok do that so fast? So I started talking to people at Binance and then I talked to people at Alibaba, Tencent, and then I talked to a lot of other companies in the US. And I saw like a stark difference because mm-hmm. like some companies move like, really fast. Like Weibo, as a first generation of ML platforms, they like retrain the model like every month. And now it's a the sixth version of the ML platforms they can just read like they can just update the models like every five to ten minutes and it's not small models it's a large model and it was like what is the technology like what is the secret and they start talking and there's something called a like real-time data or a near real-time data like streaming technology so so I mean as a Machine engineer slash data scientist. Of course, I didn't really understand that. So I was talking to my friends, just like, who is the best person to talk to about streaming? And they were very kind to point me to a lot of people. And there was one person that I had like really great rapport with, he was leading the streaming team, data platform team at Netflix. So he was very helpful. He was very patient explaining to me because I was like, pretty stupid back then with the streaming. But then I learned a ton from, from from talking with him. And then, uh, and then over time, uh, we, we kept in touch, like we, we talked like every two months and then we realized it's like a lot more problems. So we started talking that like, every month and then like, every two weeks. And then we finally, we finally decided to leave Netflix. And that's how we started the company together. But the goal is like to make it like it's very easy mm-hmm. for companies to do fast iterations of the machine models, both for predictions and for continual learning.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is um, yeah generally describing this notion of real-time machine learning, which yeah. I think is, is something pretty novel. You don't get taught that in undergrad, right? Or even in grad school. Yeah, yes. Well, <laughs> yeah. I guess you will be teaching it. So. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, think, I think it's really cool. Um, I think a lot of companies already leverage like some sort of streaming for like, logging and uh, notifications. They just have an adapted for machine learning. Um, so the reason is that sh- streaming is owned by distributed systems and it's, um, and things are pretty complicated when you do things at scale because we streaming, right? Because you have like in- continuously incoming stream of data. So if like, if it's a like slow to like, to, to process at some point, even cascading it to like, to the future. So, so it's pretty like one of the factor uh, that is hard. Um, um, and a lot of data scientists are not familiar. With with shrimping and um, so 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 yeah so I think you see that it is hard uh, I think we talked a lot about this and this is terrifying by touching
0: distributed mm-hmm. systems yeah so yeah it was scary I would be scared
1: <laughs> I was scared I was scared that's why I was like okay my father he just does everything
0: that. Okay. Like, <laughs> i see i see you, you're just a brains you like
1: no he's a brain i'm more i'm i'm i'm, I'm, I'm the math i'm the talking
0: okay okay
1: i'm just kidding we both do things
0: of course of course um, <laughs> no
1: i think i think there's a nice thing so about having a co is that um it makes your life a lot easier like a lot because i was looking at this idea before i met him and but but thing like real-time machine is a fundamentally a infrastructure problem. So mm-hmm. that's not a problem that I can solve easily. So so the nice thing about having a father a co-father who is com who has skill complementary to you is that you both do things but then you split work fifty fifty, 50 but then the, the half the the parts that he does is like really, really hard for you to do. It's the part that you would that.
0: do way more slowly. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So 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 like he doesn't come from a shooting background. Right. So, so I make of course about like the more, but, but I think that it, it, it works out nicely. And I think that something that our investor did say, uh, or reasons, uh, because it's a lot of teams that have very homogeneous background and the same skill set, but we did have pretty wide coverage as a combination of our skill set.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah, that's cool. And then, uh, yeah, I guess on that note, it's worth noting that, uh, as far as your skill sets go, we've touched on this a bit, but not only are you an expert in AI or an expert now, not, not so much as so-called expert, but you do also like to write a lot. So we've talked about some of your blog posts and, uh, now is the time to get to your new book and class so you have a class called um, machine learning system design and then a book called uh, designing machine learning systems yeah how did those two come about
1: um so so the book is uh based on the lecture note so i think for me uh i think it's something we written you know for for a long time i think i had a booklet on machine system design i think back in 2019 Mm -hmm. Uh, and then that evolved into a course and the course went through like a couple iterations so got a lot of feedback and a lot of thoughts went into this so the book is more like the result of a pretty long process three year process
0: Mm, like a
1: lot of feedback yeah
0: I see yeah a lot of people listening to this are probably engineers uh, or you know AI researchers etc would you say writing a book is hard? Everything. Worth doing is hard.
1: I was talking with friends this weekend, it was just like everything we brought up like, it's hard. Building a community is hard. Uh building a platform is hard. Writing a book is hard. Doing a PhD is hard. Right? I think everything worth doing is hard.
0: What was the process of writing? But did you learn a lot as you went about kind of forming this book?
1: A uh, lot, a lot. I think he has gone through so many iterations i'm mm-hmm. a big fan of iterations like very big and it's like the learning models iteration is everything yeah. um yeah uh so so i had like somebody on the internet once said it's like the best way to get the right answer is to say the wrong thing and wait for it to correct you so so i think that's my approach to writing it's like i just need to put my thoughts out there and mm-hmm. just ask people who know better than me to look at it and be like okay this is just wrong and so that's why i get a lot of uh of, of, of feedback
0: mm-hmm. I see, I see.
1: So, a lot of time through the process. Like, a lot of people we'll said, okay, this doesn't sound right. I was like, okay, why is this this way? Like, or so they might point me to like related resources or they might retail. Or so they might be like, oh, I totally agree with this. And then they start telling me a, a story of like how they encountered that, which makes this a lot more concrete. So, it was really awesome.
0: Oh, okay. That's good to know. And then, um, yeah, now it came out. It came out, what, like a week or two ago, right?
1: Yes. I think it so, was that a
0: week ago, it feels like forever ago, yeah. Yeah, a long time ago, a week ago. Um, so, you know, if you're listening, you can already order it. Uh, it's been doing pretty well. And I think people mm-hmm. seem to like it. For, for whom did you write this book? Who would you say should consider looking into getting it um, and kind of broadly, you know, what are the contents? What will you learn about from looking into designing machine learning systems?
1: So I think it's for anyone who interested in working with machine learning systems in production. So it's not much about research. We don't really covering like, covering like different types of uh, of architecture. Like what's different between like uh, convolutions and recurrent? We, we don't do that. Like I don't do that in the book. But mostly for people interested in like building this, like a like production ready systems.
0: Okay, so there you go. Uh, if you're in industry, consider getting a book. Uh, And I think that will close out. Thank you again, Chip, for joining us for this interview.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I hope that you can understand me. I know I got very excited and spoke very fast. So yeah.
0: Well, I could. So if if listeners can, not and that's on the But you also
1: have known me for a long time, Andre, if by now you should That's still true. That's not me, a fair bar.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm friends you now. <laughs> okay. Well, hopefully people uh, understood it. I think they did and uh yeah, this was really fun. So thanks again for having this chat.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: And just to close out, once again, this is the Gradient Podcast associated with the Gradient magazine over at thegradient.pub, where we have a lot of text articles about AI. Feel free to check it out if you have not. If you've enjoyed this interview, uh, please do subscribe to the podcast if you haven't. It's available everywhere. And if you're subscribed, then uh, maybe share this with your friends or other people interested in, in AI, or even go ahead and review it on Apple Podcasts, where we do not have that many reviews we'd love to hear your feedback but uh all that aside uh, the main thing is please do keep tuning in we're gonna have a lot of uh, interesting interviews coming up. so keep listening and uh yeah thank you for listening to this one